everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Kashish Gupta, a co-founder and CEO of HiTouch, a data platform that helps sync customers' data from data warehouse to their CRM, marketing, and support tools. Today, we're talking with Kashish about empowering business teams with operational analytics. But before we get into all that, Kashish, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oleg. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, I'm excited to chat as well. Excited to learn a little bit more about you. So let's start here. Tell us about yourself. How did you get started in tech? Yeah, definitely. So technically, I started my first business in 10th grade. Um, and mm. that was through a business plan competition um, that I did with a few of my friends. And that's really when I went from being like someone that was learning how to code and being an engineer to someone that wanted to start become a startup founder. Um, fast forward, went to school, studied engineering and business uh, in college at Penn and moved to SF when I graduated without a job. Um, I was supposed to be uh, a venture capitalist at Bessemer Venture Partners. And at that point in time, I was like, well, I want to move to SF first, see what that is about and like just experience the startup world. Um, and so I moved to SF looking for a job and ended up instead starting this thing called Carry, which was a AI travel assistant on Slack. Um, and the reason for that is I was interviewing and at the same time, like I was telling my friends about this idea and they were all like, well, this is an awesome idea. We would love to use this product as customers. And in fact, our startups will use your product too. And you can go B2B with it if you want. Um, and so that's really what took me down the path of becoming a startup founder. Um, this was back in 2018. But early days for me, it was really just like, I, I love uh, like the idea of technology being used to help people. I love the idea of starting something from scratch and then being able to choose who you work with, how you work, and all those kinds of things. And so it, it kind of feels like it lets you carve your own path. Totally. How'd you get into, how did you start high touch? So this is an interesting story in um, 2020 uh, because of COVID, we were pivoting our business. And at the time um, our housemate, Josh was working on, on, um, on winding down his IOT business and also wanted to pivot too. So what we decided is me and Tejas who were working on carry together and Josh who was working on device plane decided to combine into one company. And we decided to do something together in the customer data space. So with that, like we went out and started learning from a lot of pretty mature companies like HBO, Walmart, Nike, like pretty big companies, and just understanding their data stack. Um, and through that, we realized like th there's a few pretty big gaping holes in customer data. Um, and that's how we discovered the data warehouse is solving one of those big gaping holes, which is that currently like your data is stored with your SaaS vendors. Uh, sometimes it's stored in a CDP like segment. Sometimes it's stored in Salesforce, um, sometimes it's stored in some other marketing tool. And we found that all these big companies were replacing that source of truth in their vendors with a source of truth that they actually owned called the Cloud Data Warehouse, which was stuff like Snowflake and BigQuery. And that's kind of the realization that made us think, oh, the world is actually changing. Um, people are starting to own their own data and manage it themselves in this data warehouse in a place where they can write SQL and merge it however they want. And because of that, we were like, okay, so this is already happening. Um, and then we asked them, like, what parts are missing? And they said, well, now that I have this data in the data warehouse, I need to get it out. I have no way of actually giving it back to my business users in those vendors like Salesforce and HubSpot. Um, and so we thought, well, that's a great use case for us to go build something that is actually kind of similar to what we built before. So both of my co-founders were early employees at Segment. 
And Segment also has this concept of getting data into different SaaS applications. Um, they're just doing event data, and we're doing like really all types of data, anything that's in the data warehouse. Is there anything to add? Like, it, it, can you give me the elevator pitch for High Touch? I feel like you told me about the pivot and a little bit about yeah, what yeah. you do, but, but continue if there's yes. more. So very simply, um, we get data from any database or data warehouse into any SaaS application, like a CRM. Um, and we do that with a SQL query. So you just give us a SQL query, and we'll turn that SQL query into a data pipeline that feeds data into something like Salesforce or HubSpot or your marketing tool. Um, and so it's a pretty nice way for getting data into your SaaS tools without writing any code. Like in the old world, you'd have to write a Python script or some sort of script to ping the SaaS API and get data into that SaaS tool. And now it just flows pretty automatically as long as you have a SQL query, which means that most people in the company would be able to use our tool rather than just engineers. And next, talk about your vision. What is, uh, what is, what is the vision or the mission for High Touch? Yeah, so it's twofold. One is to make data accessible to everyone. So we think that everyone's a data practitioner, right? And we think that pretty much to do your job in a company today, you need to use data. And usually you'll be waiting for someone like a data team to give it to you. So first, we want to make data accessible to everyone um, with the UIs that are even simpler than SQL. SQL is a good starting point, but we're going even further by creating a point-and-click UI to access data. Uh, and then the second is making it possible for all of those folks to also take action on data. So rather than just being able to see it in a dashboard like a BI tool, we want you to be able to turn that data into automation. So for example, power email campaigns or power ad campaigns, um, create Salesforce tasks, pretty much anything. Um, and that actionability piece is where we excel at because we focus on how that data gets to different destinations. Okay, let's start talking about uh, you know, the market of operational analytics. I, I want to start by understanding um, some of the key innovations in data warehouse technology. So yeah, uh, what do you have? What are some of the key innovations that make this kind of uh, platform possible? Yeah, so there were two big ones. Oh, and, they, and they caused two big effects, right? So one was the separation of compute and storage. Because of the separation of compute and storage, you can actually store like infinite amounts of data for super cheap because you don't have to pay compute on it. So usually what would happen is if you want a bigger and bigger database, you need a bigger and bigger server, which means you pay more and more. And so it wasn't really practical for people to store all of their data in the data warehouse because as the data warehouse got bigger, the data warehouse got more expensive. Um, now, because compute and storage are separate, you can just store like terabytes and terabytes of data um, in the data warehouse. And it only, you only incur a cost when you run the query. It literally takes the data from the storage bucket loads it into memory at the time of the query run, um, charges you just for that query run, and then loads it back out. Um, and so that just made them significantly cheaper and made it possible for you to now say, like, you know what, I'm going to replicate every single piece of data in my entire company into this one place called Data Warehouse. And then the second one was because of um, them moving to the cloud, you could now access significantly more compute at once than you would be able to afford. So I might only be able to afford a server that's like $10,000, but on the cloud, I can afford what is the equivalent of a server that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it can run my query much faster um, and give me those results much faster. And additionally, I don't have to maintain the infrastructure because it's on the cloud. Snowflake or BigQuery can just maintain it for me. And that is actually really convenient um, because I don't have to hire a whole team now to manage the DevOps for this platform. So those three things like cost, speed, and then accessibility really make it so that it's a no-brainer for every company basically to use the data warehouse as the source, like the central source of all their data. And like, imagine it this way, like you have a production database like Postgres, you replicate that into your data warehouse, you have all your SaaS tools, you replicate those in your data warehouse, 
And then you have all your marketing data. You replicate that into your data warehouse. So pretty much a copy of all the different data in your company should always be in the data warehouse, which means you can totally just run SQL queries and joins across all those data sources in one place. That is some vision. What are the main reasons for adopting like warehouse technology in a company's operational workflows today? So the interesting thing is that companies honestly are not yet adopting um, warehouse technology in their operational workflows. Up until this point, warehouses were pretty much used for analytics, um, which would be things like, I need to calculate um, how much this customer is going to pay me over the next few years, or I need to calculate whether this customer is going to churn. Um, those types of metrics calculations and analytics. Um, it was not so much focused on things like powering sales or marketing um, in real time because it was simply too slow. Now that it's gotten faster, people are actually looking at powering operational workflows. And Hightouch is really like the first company that is making that possible because up until that point, data was not getting out of the warehouse. It was literally just in the warehouse, um, viewable via things like Looker, but never leaving the warehouse. And who benefits the most from this data warehouse technology? Is it primarily bigger companies or someone else? Yeah, usually medium to bigger companies. So you'll, you'll justify buying something like a warehouse if you have enough complexity of data. And if you have usually like a data person or a data team that can build those queries and models on top of the data warehouse. So up until the point where you have a data person, usually you'll just power things um, via like point to point solutions. So you'll get, just, you'll get data directly from your product database into your CRM. Whereas once you have people running queries and like creating real models, um, the data warehouse is like a no-brainer. And um, who it really benefits in the end of the day? Um, today, it primarily benefits the analytics team. And with the reverse ETL and with high touch, it starts to benefit the go-to-market teams like sales and marketing, as well as the finance team. Got it. Well, uh, you made a... You made it a very nice transition into my next question. Uh, what is the reverse ETL process and where does high touch fit in? Yeah, so we, we actually coined the term reverse ETL. That's like um, an interchangeable term almost for what high touch is. And um, what it means is ETL is usually the process of like extract, transform, load. Um, and that would be usually the process of getting data into a data warehouse. So what I was mentioning before about copying all of your data from some product database or some SaaS tool into the data warehouse, that would be the ETL process that goes into the warehouse. Um, and the reason this thing is called reverse ETL is because we're just doing the opposite, which is getting data out of the warehouse and back into those um, operational tools. And to be honest, like the term is a smaller vision than what we really are. When you think ETL, you think of replication of data. So simply this data exists here and I want it to exist there. But we do a little bit more than replication because we don't just replicate like, all right, I have a user purchases table in my data warehouse. I want that to be in my CRM. We also do things like creating tickets or creating tasks or notifying sales folks when someone is about to buy um, and all those kinds of actions. So it, we're, we're definitely going to get to a point where we're going to brand this as something other than reverse ETL because reverse ETL will be too small for our vision. But it's a really good way to understand that we're getting data out of the warehouse. What kind of key assumptions have you made as you built the design and functionality of your service? Uh, yeah, so the, the big one is that the source of data is always relational, which means that it, can, it is always found in some table format. And the cool thing is that I say data warehouse as the source, but it could really be anything. It could be Airtable, it could be Google Sheets, 
Uh, it could even be a spreadsheet. Like it can be literally anything that can be expressed as a table. Um, and, any, and, and specifically anything that's a table where the first column of that table is a unique ID, so a primary key, right? Um, and, and the fact that we're limited only by relational data means that we can pretty much support any data that is structured. Um, and, and so you could be taking Looker data um, that, that your BI team has already organized for you, and you could be using HighTouch to send that on to Salesforce. Or it could be directly from the database. Uh, it could be directly from your production database, pretty much anything. So that key assumption of relational data helps us a lot. And then the key assumption of like, this data can be accessed via SQL also helps us a lot in making this problem tractable. So in the history of data integration, you actually didn't get certainty of what the data looks like. Because usually the data integration tool would just accept any type of freeform data, which means a bunch of errors could be thrown. Or you might get like, a different type of data than you did last time. Like One day you might get a number. The next day you might get a letter. Right? And so then your whole process would have to be able to handle abstract types of data. The beauty of SQL is that you know what you're going to get. Because in my SQL query, I'll write for you, here's the columns I'm going to get. And if I run that SQL query before, and that column returned an integer, it's pretty much definitely going to return an integer next time too. So the fact that you can have certainty of that data, always get it in the same format, and always um, get it successfully pretty much, um, we get to make a lot of assumptions that allow our app to be really scalable and really reliable. Whereas like o- older data integration tools didn't get to have that reliability because they were accepting any type of data. Speaking of other tools, what are some of the challenges that HighTouch, that HighTouch helps address its users better than other tools? Yeah, so that concept I just explained of like declarative versus imperative um, is really interesting. So declarative is stuff like SQL, where I know what I'm going to get, and I can kind of instruct this to happen. Versus imperative is I'll just wait and I'll just say like, okay, like send me data whenever you get it and then I'll forward it onwards, right? So compared to workflow automation tools like Trey, Zapier, and Workado, um, this declarative in, um, model of using SQL is actually really nice. Not only because it's accessible to people that know SQL that don't, have, that don't necessarily know how to code, but also because you get to have a lot of consistency in those processes um, and you'll throw a lot less errors. And then compared to things like CDPs like Segment or um, Lytics, that kind of stuff. Um, the difference is that we kind of let you build your own CDP on top of your data warehouse, where we're saying, you already have Snowflake or BigQuery set up. It already has all your data. Don't do new work. Just use your existing work and utilize it everywhere. So like, imagine um, this value prop of BYO database. So any SaaS tool I want to set up, like a CRM, I can just bring my own database. And then boom, my SaaS tool has all my data from the history of time. Uh, that's like a pretty cool concept. And that's really like our value prop, which is don't think of your SaaS tools as their own um, like database or their own source of truth. If you do, then you'll be stuck on them forever and they'll own your data. Instead, use the big cloud data warehouse that you have um, and plug it into any SaaS tool you want. And it'll automatically just work with all your historical data. And so that really excites customers because they're like, yeah, now I'm going to own my data stack. And if I want to change something in my warehouse, it'll automatically reflect everywhere else, um, which is pretty exciting for them. So like, yeah, I think the, and if, if we're talking about like key problems that we solve, usually it's things like this data is missing from my marketing tool or this data is missing from my sales tool. So a really good example of this is my salespeople and my marketing people actually don't know how much the customer is using the product. 
they have the customer's name and their email address, and they know the customer has an account. But they don't have things like, how many times did this person log in? How many times did this person buy, a, buy on my product? Um, how many API requests did they run? How many errors did they encounter? Um, when is their renewal date? All this kind of information is usually stored in your data warehouse and not privy to the go-to-market team, which means that they're instead going to be running marketing campaigns and sales campaigns off of much more basic data. Um, and using something like HighTouch, you can then get that data in that sales and marketing tool, which makes it totally usable by that sales and marketer. And that's like the last thing I'll say, which is that like, just accessing data is not the same as getting it in your tool. If I could just read the data as a CSV, that would be nice. I would know like, which users have which traits. Um, but reading the data is not the same as getting it in Salesforce, because if it's in Salesforce, I can automatically trigger emails, or I can automatically trigger tasks, or I can automatically trigger hundreds of other things. Um, and so being able to let business users create those automations is really the key here. And giving them basically like unbounded access to their data is the key here. All right. Well, you know, you told us a little bit about some of the challenges uh, that HighTouch helps its users with. Um, let's talk about HighTouch. Actually, you already sort of off the top talked about the origin story. You pivoted this company, and I've actually never heard heard that before. You kind of combined two companies into one and, and uh, pivoted. But could you tell me more about that? Definitely. So um, in 2020, we actually had a few different iterations of this business before we landed on reverse ETL as like our long-term solution. And during that process, the first thing we built actually was a customer dashboard for, a, for, for you to see all the data you have in your customer. So you would just type in your customer's email address or their ID, and it would pull up all the product information, all the sales information, marketing information, billing information, pretty much everything your company had on that customer, you'd get to see in this dashboard. Um, and we were auto-generating those dashboards um, based on having all those data sources built into our product. And when we showed the market that product, it was really like, this is awesome. We love this product, but I already have a central source of my data. It's the data warehouse. And I'd rather that you give me the data from the data warehouse rather than from all these tools. And like, um, at, th at this point, like, again, it's, it's me, Tejas, and Josh. Um, we were just doing exploration on like, what, where customer data is missing in the go-to-market stack. And it sounded like in the beginning that people just didn't have the customer data and they needed to see it. But then it sounded like, actually, we do have the data. It's just not accessible. It's stuck in something called a data warehouse, and the go-to-market team doesn't have it. So that's the, that was our first learning. We're like, OK, that's cool. We should make the data warehouse the source. So then we did a dashboard based on the data warehouse as a source. And they next said, well, this is really cool, but my go-to-market folks can't do anything with the data if it's in your dashboard. All they can do is see it. And seeing it is pretty much just as good as seeing it in a looker. But what if I want to take action on that data? Um, and so we said, OK, that's interesting. Like, Instead of taking it, putting it into the R dashboard, maybe we should put it in your operational tools like Salesforce and HubSpot. And so that was the next thing we built, which was getting data from the data warehouse to Salesforce and HubSpot. And that's really where we landed on reverse ETL. Because then people started saying, hey, like, this is so similar to the ETL process that I already do, but it's just the opposite. And um, there was this tool called Fivetran that everyone kind of knew about. And they said, yeah, Fivetran does Salesforce to warehouse for me. You guys do warehouse to Salesforce. So maybe you guys are like reverse Fivetran. And we were like, well, we don't want to be called reverse Fivetran, so let's do reverse ETL. I think that's going to be a much cooler name. And, and that's really how we thought of that name at the time. But really, it was like, uh, at, at the time, it was just us three and one employee, Ernest. And he, he's been with the company for like almost three years. So he's been with us for like over, like for all, every single pivot, literally. 
And at that time is when we really started getting inbound from customers. At that point, we had already raised a seed from the travel company, and we turned that into a Series A with the new reverse ETL concept, and really went to market really, really hard with that Series A money. And and recently, you raised a Series B, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So we just we just announced that two days ago on Wednesday, which is a forty million dollars Series B, which we never honestly could have expected that it would have happened so fast. Um, right now, it kind of feels like crazy to be a startup founder. Like you blink, and then the next second, like there's now five more people in your company and like millions more dollars. It just really doesn't feel real sometimes, but I'm very thankful. Like for me, I'm an engineer by trade, but my, both my co-founders are even more technical than I am by a lot. And so for us to build this product in 2020 was really due to them. Like A, their experience at Segment was dramatically helpful because Segment has a very similar value prop as what we do, but a very different architecture. And so they were able to take that framework and apply it to building a new product really quickly. And two, like we're the kind of team that just delivers product very quickly. And instead of having to tell people like, oh, like we'll set this up for you in like some suboptimal way, we'll just build the whole thing, show it to them. And then if they use it, then we'll build it even more. Right. So like, it's rare that you get to work with people that can move so quickly in delivering that kind of product. And so it's just been fun. Let's talk about hiring. Uh, You're doing a lot of it. Like you mentioned, what's your strategy for attracting the best talent? Yeah, so a lot of um, our hires have been uh, through the segment network and of, of like past segment employees, and as well as like just um, our personal networks in the tech communities. And then additionally, like we do try to have a decent amount of like just like transparency, right? Like, what kind of people are we? What are our values? What do we do for fun? Like, very, very importantly, like I, I think attracting the best talent is no longer about showing them that you have a big opportunity, that you're going to make a lot of money that this company's going to do well, that we're smart. I think those things are kind of given these days. Um, attracting the best talent is really based on like value alignment. You're going to have fun here. We're going to care about each other and be family. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that like has always been true in our company, but we're trying to just like tell more and more people about it because every time we talk to candidates, they're like, okay, great. Like I know I'm going to make a lot of money, but tell me about like, what am I going to do for fun? Like, why do I even care? Like in the end of the day, making software can be really exciting sometimes, but it's not always going to be the most fun thing in the world. So who am I working with? What kind of person are they? And are they good people? That's really what we focus on. And that's a meta answer. I mean, the truth is that like we have to interview a lot of people in order to make that happen. And we're especially very selective about engineers. So we're still looking like really badly for, for like several more engineers to do on our team. I mean, it seems like uh, you'd have to have the bar pretty high. It seems like a pretty technical product. Is there anything specifically you look for outside of a a deep technical background? Um, A few things. So personality, uh, the biggest one is how much they care. Like it's easy to find smart people. It's hard to find people that care about customers, care about each other, want to put their heart into their work and like really make it meaningful. So that is extremely difficult to gauge for. But if you can find that, then like that's a home run. And like... Really, it is looking for people like on, on the engineering side, it's actually really, really clear for us. Um, we don't have PMs. So we think engineers should write their own spec, should talk to customers directly themselves and like really like do the end to end of understanding, empathizing with customer, specking the feature and building the feature. Um, we don't even have project managers either. So they manage their own time and decide like their own deadlines. Um, and as a, as a result, the type of engineer we need is someone that is very product minded and very empathetic to customers. 
Um, there are extremely technical engineers that might be extremely good at infrastructure, but if they can't PM themselves and understand the customer need, they're not going to be an amazing fit for high touch. But on the other hand, the people that have fun building product and understanding product are going to have a blast at high touch and they're going to be a perfect fit. Now, I imagine finding, you know, people with uh, that skill set, right? High aptitude in engineering and product and, and people mm-hmm. that love it and care is pretty tough. Do you have any strategies for like training or, or learning when it comes to product or, or what's your strategy there? Just hire the best people? Yeah, I mean, the, at least that is relatively easier. Like once they join, how do we ramp them up to like understand exactly what's going on here? Um, we spend a lot of time like when people join, just like teaching them about the market, about data tools as a whole, how data people think. And like our product is surprisingly easy to understand. On this podcast, it might sound a bit complex, but the truth is that when you get down to it, it's actually very simple. And in the end of the day, it's always getting data from one place to another. So it's actually like on the engineering side, fairly easy for them to ramp up and understand exactly what's going on. Even on the go-to-market side, we take people through product deep dives because we think that like ultimately reverse ETL will be something that everyone has a really good understanding of and is actually not so complex. And if anything, our branding makes it more sound more complex because it sounds like a technical tool, but I could totally tell you that it was just a data integration tool, and then you would think it's not that technical. Talk about timing. Why is now the right time for your company? Yeah, it's, it's truly because of the rise of data warehouses. So we all saw Snowflake go IP, uh, uh, have their IPO. It was the largest IPO in tech history. And even, even now, it, it is like 2x of the original IPO price. And the reason for all this growth for Snowflake is because they're really changing how customers, how companies um, do their data stack and their data infrastructure. So with the shift to people being able to have their own data warehouse and actually store all of their data in it, um, it is like the perfect timing to be doing reverse ETL and getting data out of the warehouse. Again, previously, people didn't have data warehouses. If they did, they were, owned on, their, they were on their own servers and they were way too slow. So that's like truly why the timing is so good. And the second one is like, you just have so many SaaS tools these days. Like any given company, even if they're only like 30, 40 people, they probably have a 15 SaaS tools. And they'll need data in each of those SaaS tools in order for the people using those SaaS tools to make use of them. And so like both of those two things combined make it like a really good time for being in this market. And like even like all of us, the founders, the employees and the investors, everyone's really betting on this market to go get bigger and bigger and bigger where like we know the product is very useful we know we have some conviction that pretty much every company in the world should be using it at some point but not today like companies are not there there's like some percent of companies that are ready for it today because they have like a modern data architecture and then the majority don't but if we truly believe that like every year like a very very significant portion of companies will be adding that kind of infrastructure then we should believe that they're also going to become qualified to buy high touch all right, next, what are some of the key features and functionalities of HighTouch? Uh, yeah, so um, very simply, we take SQL queries. Um, all we'll do is we'll map. Um, we, we, have a, we have like a visual mapper that maps columns in SQL to fields in your SAS tool. So for example, um, you have a user's table in your database. And in the user's table, you have first name, last name, and email address. And you want that first name, last name, email address to go to whatever your CRM is, like Salesforce. Um, and so we'll give you a UI to map first name to first name, last name to last name, and email to email from, again, your database to your Salesforce. And so that kind of visual UI is actually what makes it really easy to use HighTouch, no matter who you are. So your data team can set this up. And then later on, now that we have first name, last name, email, we also want to add 
how much does this customer spend? Or we want to add how many times did they log in last three days? We would very easily um, write, take the SQL query for that and then map those last two things, last three days logged in and dollars spent over to Salesforce. And then automatically Hyte would sync the data for all new users and all past users. So it's pretty much just like map the data, click sync, and then you watch the data go and you don't have to worry about anything else. So it's, it's kind of that simple. And we have about 70 to 80 SaaS tools now that we have as destinations. So most things that you use or you can think of, we'd be able to support. And we're building like two or three of them per week at this point. Let's look under the hood. Talk about your technology stack and, and what kind of important early, early decisions you had to make. Yeah, so we're all in AWS. It's for better or for worse, it's all in Node.js basically. And the front end is in React. So and that, that was a decision that was from the past, like in, in a long time ago, like we had an application that was written in Node and React. So we just kept that architecture. Um, looking back, we would probably have to love to have a backend in Golang, but here we are. So I think um, that's the overall architecture. And like, even when we hire engineers, like we're not really big on like, oh, you need to know this language or not, right? What we care about is like, can you think about solving problems? Um, and the language that you write in is just an after, afterthought at the end of the day. Um, the hard problems are the hard problems. And coding them is actually like not usually the hard part. It's like thinking of what you want to write. Um, and that's our, that's our stack. Uh, we scaled it pretty horizontally on ECS, which is like the um, AWS version of Docker, um, and have made it so that we consistently like scale as customers sync more and more data. And we have to do that because some customers are syncing millions of rows per hour and some are only syncing thousands of rows per hour. But at any given point, we could have a large customer on board and then do like 100 million rows, which means our architecture will have to handle it. Um, and then like, I don't want to go too deep into it, but like basically like the, the, the cool part is that we have the app um, and the app's backend running on, on one machine. And then we have the actual worker that pulls data from the data warehouse and sends it to the destinations separately and so the app itself is like super like 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 not intense right it's, it's it's a visual application you click around you set up a sync and then that's all you have to do so you don't, you can actually have a pretty small machine running that application with hundreds of thousands of users because it's not high throughput or high data when you create those things in the app the workers will pick it up and they actually have to handle a lot of data and a lot of network operations and so on and so the workers are the part that need to be horizontally scalable um, and they'll, we actually have our own scheduler that will maintain like which workers will go first, second, third, and like make sure that um, requests for data syncs are getting prioritized equally um, or sequentially and make sure that, like, again, we scale up as we need more um, workers for more data syncs. And the, the, the last thing I'll say there is like, we also get to maintain that way unlimited numbers of workers technically. So if you have like a thousand customers, each customer is doing 10 syncs. You could have 10,000 workers doing 10,000 syncs and scale really, really horizontally that way. So, and, and this is like really thanks to Josh. Like, Josh is an unbelievable architect. He's our co founder and CTO. And like, for him, this kind of stuff is a piece of cake. For me, it's like super exciting. Well, thank you for breaking it down. Next, talk about some of the key milestones that you've achieved along your journey. Yeah. So, um, end of last year, we really were just like something like, four customers, maybe 100K of revenue. Uh, we were just getting started. 
And this year we're like significantly bigger. Like I, I, I can't really publicly state what our revenue and customers are like, but it's hundreds of customers now, over a hundred of which are paying too. And like the kinds of companies we work with are like, we have like six public companies using us. Um, some of like the largest gaming and the like media brands. Um, and like we have like publicly, like we have ones like Auto Trader and Nando's Chicken, uh, Imperfect Foods. Uh, insurify that kind of stuff like like really like reasonably exciting companies to work with that are using our product um and how we got there is we started the year with four employees um it was us and Ernest. we now have 30 people and about half of that is engineering so we've just really really invested in engineering and product um we hired a full-time designer early on because we wanted to make the product really good and we like all three co-founders really play a big hand in the product experience and like making sure the product is really good and thinking of like, what can we build next on product? So I guess if you think about milestones, um, it, was, it was really like around that time we had a series A, then we really started experiencing this large customer growth and inbound demand, um, followed by hiring really aggressively. And now we're kind of at the point where when people think reverse ETL, they think high touch. And we really feel like it's only our job to tell people about reverse ETL. Like, it's kind of more fun to say, you know, you should use reverse ETL. It's a technology. This is how it works. Then to tell people you should buy high touch because that's kind of like too self-serving, you know? And then if we're one of only a few reverse ETL vendors and we're the best one, then people should choose us. That's kind of what we believe in. And otherwise, they could even build reverse ETL in-house, right? Like, there could be totally a case where you're, you have such sensitive data that you don't want to use high touch. You want to build it in-house. And then we're really happy to teach them about how to build reverse ETL in-house and even potentially share our code with them. So uh, that's how we think, which is really like everyone should use reverse ETL. And if we do a good job on product, then they'll probably choose us in that process and let product speak for itself. So you mentioned, you know, you all work on the product. Um, I know you can't be telling us everything that's on the roadmap, but can you talk about some of the exciting things that you might be working on now and and where your product is headed? Yeah, so we just launched... um, a few months ago, this product called Hydrate Audiences. And what it does is it lets people create audiences of their data, like segments of their data, um, without any SQL. So I could say something like, show me all users that logged in in the past 30 days, um, and then filter them by the ones that actually purchased, or filter them by the ones that actually downloaded my iOS app, but did not purchase. Along those lines, you create those audiences. Um, you could filter by demographic, you could filter by location, anything you want but in a completely visual way. So the same way you'd use like Amplitude or Mixpanel to access data visually, um, it looks very similar to that um, in that pretty much anyone could intuitively understand it. And it should allow any of those folks to then pull that data and send it to tools that they want to send it to. So that one was really exciting because it kind of democratized access to data rather than keeping that power to people that know SQL. And then another one that we're quite excited about is like um, this thing that we're calling high touch actions, probably. And name is not finalized yet, so uh, I'll get back to you on what we decide for sure. But it's either called, it's something like high touch actions or high touch workflows. Um, and the story here is that like reverse ETL is replication, whereas actions is making it possible to create new resources and tasks and actions in downstream tools. So, for example. Um, I have a user that um, downloads my app, but they don't make an account, right? So that data is in my warehouse. I now want to send that data to um, 
an account manager to go reach out, reach out to that user. So I'll send it to my customer success tool and I'll say, create task for account manager to reach out so that this person that downloaded the app can actually make an account and like send them a nice email and stuff. So that kind of automation is only possible if you think outside of the bounds of a reverse ETL and you think of it as like actual go-to-market actions. Um, and so we're super pumped about that. Things like Zendesk tickets would fall there. Uh, Asana, Asana projects would fall there. And um, Salesforce tasks would be there too. So like any sort of automation where you don't even have the data necessarily on the source side and you're creating it fresh. So like, uh, just to reiterate, like what that looks like is I want to create a Zendesk ticket that tells people to go reach out to this customer. Um, I obviously don't have a model in my data warehouse for that Zendesk ticket. Um, at best, I have users um, and workspaces and maybe like IDs of bugs that those workspaces have encountered. So what I could do is I could create a SQL query and say, anyone in a workspace that has encountered this bug, um, create a Zendesk ticket for them automatically. And so I'd be mapping like workspace bugs to Zendesk tickets and creating those tickets fresh. Um, and the interesting um, thing about the architecture that changes is that you don't want to create the same ticket over and over and over. So you actually need to remember, um, I've, created, I've created this ticket before. Next time, don't sync this data again. This person is already in this audience of people that encountered this bug. And so this ticket should only be created once. Um, and that's where our diffing algorithm that we use in between all syncs actually gets used for like um, making the data, like, like for powering this use case rather than just for speed. Usually you'd say diffing just helps you with speed because you're only sending new data rather than all data. And so it allows you to send less data than you would otherwise have to, right? So that's just speed. But in this case, diffing actually means that it will prevent duplicate tickets from being created and be able to do brand new operations like Zendesk tickets or Salesforce tasks. Um, and so it was kind of an, a byproduct of us having diffing on day one that customers asked for this. And we were like, yeah, sure, we could totally do that. And now like a ton of people are demanding it and we think it could be like its own UI and its own everything. And actually, like, one, one thing to, to actually correct myself on is it's not going to be its own UI. Um, we actually already support these things. Like, what happened is that we actually like, have high-touch actions um, baseline supported in a lot of our integrations. But because we call ourselves reverse ETL, our customers don't always realize that they can do those things. And they're pretty much looking for data replication. So the reason we want to brand it as its own thing is so that people just know, hey, guess what? We actually do more than reverse ETL. But that doesn't mean that like, it's actually a new thing. It's actually something we've been doing for like, since the beginning of time, actually, like, since, like, since last year. And that's actually why a lot of customers have chosen us as the number one reverse ETL because it, it's really deep what you can do with each integration. Let's keep talking about your customers. Uh, you, you know, you've said you want to democratize this kind of technology for everybody in the company, not just engineers or, or a data team. Who are the primary users of high touch? Uh, is it everybody? Uh, yeah, give me a sense of uh, who the pr like primary use case might be. Yeah, usually it starts with data teams um, and especially data engineers. What they'll do is they'll say, I have all these data models. I've already curated them in my data warehouse and figured out my SQL queries. And the only part I haven't done, the last remaining thing is getting that data into operational tools. Um, so what they'll do is they'll buy HighTouch, um, they'll set it up, connect it to their data warehouse and all of their models. And then they'll let other users come in that are on the go-to-market side and utilize their help to set up the syncs. So those users will come in and map the data over to the operational tool and actually like, decide how it should appear in that operational tool. So it's usually together. Like, it's usually like data will find out about it, set it up, and then sales ops, marketing ops, marketing teams themselves, 
RevOps, they'll all come in and actually utilize the tool post setup. Uh, so it's a mix of both. Let's talk about uh, the go-to-market strategy. How are you reaching your customers? So it's actually all inbound right now. Uh, and I'm guessing the reason for that is because like, th- this is something that people kind of recognize as a really wide and um, ubiquitous problem. So you can almost think of it this way, that people have been doing reverse ETL and looking for reverse ETL for a very long time, um, probably ever since like, SaaS pool started existing. But they just never had a category for it or a SaaS pool for it. They just were doing it in-house, um, again, via Python scripts that they were writing and using themselves. So now that there's a category name called reverse ETL, it kind of spreads like wildfire where a lot of people tell each other about it and say, hey, there's this new thing. Like, we don't need to write that code anymore. We can actually now use this thing called reverse ETL. And it kind of clicks. So a lot of word of mouth, um, a lot of community evangelism. Like, there's communities of data people that oftentimes hear about us. Um, and then also through really like content strategy. Like, we're really in the business of writing good content that people really like. Um, and letting that be the way that people find out about high touch. So those are kind of the inbound strategies. And I think we'll probably expand things like doing events, but we're not super like outbound salesy, you know, like I always say that people don't like to be sold to, they like to be helped or like consulted. And so like, that's the kind of people we are. Like our salespeople will also consult with customers rather than sell them. Right. And it, it, you mentioned it earlier, right? You, you would, help someone build reverse ETL in-house over, you know, trying to sell them something exactly. that they want. Exactly. Because yeah. long-term, like we think that that trust that we created there is going to pay off in some way or another. Either they'll become a user later on, they'll tell their friends about it, um, they'll talk about it, anything. Mm-hmm. Have you managed to build any partnerships uh, with other players in this industry? And are there any examples you'd like to share? Yeah. So actually partnerships are really big for us because we're literally an integrations product. So on the source side and destination side, um, every single person that we integrate with is a partner. And with some of them, we have official partnerships too. So on the source side, it's like super awesome to be partnered with Snowflake and with Fivetran because very clearly, like users of Snowflake and Fivetran are going to become users of iTouch. Same goes for users of DBT, which is a data modeling tool. All three of those companies are pretty much like like able to say, if you use Fivetrain or DBT, somewhere down the road, like probably six months from now, you're eventually going to use HighTouch. And oftentimes, their salespeople or their solutions people will be talking to the customer, and the customer will ask for a reverse ETL. And so then they'll say, yeah, like there's this company we're partnered with, with called HighTouch. You should go check them out. So that part is awesome. That's actually one of the reasons why we have like a pretty generous um, free plan, where you can use one integration as much as you want, totally for free for life. Because we want those partners to be able to say, yeah, we do know a tool. It's called HighTouch. And when, we, when they say that, we want them to say, and by the way, like, you don't even have to worry about it. Like, it's actually free to use for one integration. Just get started and let me know how it goes. Because oftentimes you see these kinds of partnerships result in, okay, let me bring in their salesperson. Let's sign a contract. Let's go through all this legal work. And that's just annoying. When that partner says, just use it, it's free. Uh, that's like a delightful moment. And so, yeah. On the, on the source side, that's how it works. And just like quickly, um, Fivetrain gets data into the warehouse. So before you even use HighTouch, you need that data in the warehouse. So you pretty much need something like Fivetrain or something in-house that does what Fivetrain does. And then similar for DBT, um, in order for HighTouch to be useful, you need SQL queries or otherwise data models. And if you don't have those, you'll have to get those. And so DBT is a really 
best-in-class way to be storing those data models and organizing those data models. So we oftentimes, in the, in the reverse direction, like refer people to Fiverr and DBT too. Like someone will come to us and say, hey, I'd love to use you guys, but I can't because I don't have my data stack set up. And we'll be like, totally understand, don't use us. Spend the next six months like setting up your Fiverr and DBT. That way, six months from now, you'll be able to use us. And so super mutually beneficial that way. Uh, there's like a lot of partnerships on the destination side too that are really exciting. So like we're partnered with Outreach, which is like an email CRM. We're partnered with Brazen Iterable, which are marketing CRMs. Um, Google Cloud Platform now, and like um, Amplitude on the product data side. So pretty much like over time, what we expect is that all of our SaaS integrations are going to become partners of ours. And they're going to be super excited to work with us uh, as they already are because they basically get to tell their customers, hey, you need an easy way to get data into our tool. No problem, use HighTouch. It'll take you five minutes and then you'll get data into our tool. So the process of getting data into that tool before, which might have taken months, becomes a five-minute thing that's free to use, which means that their tool now is more powerful with more real-time data. So it's like, there's like a lot of win-wins here where they get to say, yeah, because of HighTouch, like my customer onboarded more quickly and is using my, power, my product in a more powerful way. Next, talk about the revenue model. How do you make money? So we charge per integration. We basically say the more integrations you use, the more um, value you're getting out of a product and the more you should pay. And it's like, I think it's like $300 if you use two to three integrations per month. And then it's $800 a month if you use four to five integrations. So for all intents and purposes, it's actually really cheap for most companies. Um, and then the only time you really charge more than that is if, is if you need things like security features or really high throughput. Got it. All right, uh, let's move to close. To recap, uh, what's one thing about high touch that makes you stand out from the crowd? I could give you a meta answer for this, or I could give you like a tangible answer. Um, but I like the meta one better, which is that it's the people. Honestly, like you can meet a lot of SaaS companies out there, and like what you'll get from them is a good product. But will you get a great experience working with them or like a fun time um, by buying their tool and, and working with their engineers? Not as much. And that's what we pride ourselves in. That's why our customers love us. It's that like we're just going to be the team that like is as if you're working with someone else on your team. Like you're, you want you want to work with us um, and have fun with us because like we, like for us like it wouldn't be that interesting to just make money. You know, like uh, we we could sell to like 100 companies, make a lot of money, and we'd just be like, well, that was like not that fun. Whereas if we were able to like really help people, help them set up their data stack and like make them feel like we did something good for their companies um, and, and, and develop friendships and relationships, that would make us feel proud. And the fact that like that's the thing that makes us feel proud is exactly what like makes our employees feel proud and kind of like goes through our entire culture. How about uh, last question? What are some challenges you face as a founder that keep you up at night? Yeah, these days it's all like, um, I mean, one is really like each of us is doing like three or four functions. Um, and then that, that just gets overwhelming. And the second is like, we just need to hire more people. Like it's really difficult to bring, um, as the, the amount of talent you need without like full-time recruiters. So we did just hire, um, a head of talent and she's our first executive hire. She's going to be running the entire talent team. And so we're super pumped for that because like, again, like hiring is really the biggest bottleneck in our company right now. Um, and we're super thankful for her that she joined. Um, that hopefully will help us sleep better at night. 
but really a bat, which is like, can we bring enough people into the company so that we're not overwhelmed and that we can actually do all the things we want to do day to day? Because it's like, as a founder, you'll start your day with 10 things on your list to do. You'll end your day with 40. And then you're like, <laughs> well, I probably should choose certain things to not do because I just don't have time. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and high touch? Yeah, so um, the product is totally free to use and you can just get like started online without talking to anyone. In fact, like we encourage people to because we don't need to talk to you on a sales perspective. And then for me, um, my email is kashish at hightouch.io, which is K-A-S-H-I-S-H at hightouch.io. And we'll be super happy to get in touch. Yeah, let me know if I can help with anything. Okay. All right, Kashish, we're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Thanks again, Kashish, for joining the show today. We appreciate your time and insights and uh, wish you the best moving forward. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.